Um, good evening. How are you doing? You all right? We're kids. <laughs> Three of you. Good. Um, now, if you were here last week and you've come back, thank you. Thank you. We're talking about money. And so if you were here last week and you came back, massive thanks. And if this is your first time in a little while, sorry you've come on a week, I'm speaking about money. But what I'm not doing is I am not speaking about your money that I want to receive, okay? This is not one of those uh, church talks where you've got to um, look up, you've got to hold on to your wallet tightly because I'm about to ask. This isn't that. What we're talking about when we're looking at money as part of our vision series, we're looking at a massive area of our lives, but also a massive area of Jesus as a teaching that we see in the New Testament. And there's loads of things that he brings up about money, around money, around the way we hold it, the way we view it, the way we use it, the way we spend it, the way we save it. And so if Jesus thinks it's such a big issue, then why should we in 2023 in Liverpool? And so what we're trying to do is, is see what is a kingdom perspective on money, not just the money that you may or may not give to a church or your favorite charity, whether it's donkey sanctuaries or people in outer Mongolia, whatever it is. So last week, just a, a real quick recap. What we looked at is how we view money. And the first principle was this, that in, in terms of the Bible, uh, the way that Jesus talks about money is it is a mirror to our heart. So it reflects something of us, of our passions, of our desires, of the things that we hold dear. It's like a mirror that is held up to us. And I said, you know, a former pastor of mine said, if you want to know what someone's passionate about, check their bank account. Obviously, don't go and do that. It's quite rude. But if you want to know what someone's passionate about, then check that out. That might say vintage, 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 vintage bills, vintage, vintage, vintage. And that might say something about the kind of thing you're passionate about. Um, but the second thing is this, and this is a massive, um, uh, a massive thing to overcome, especially in the West, and especially if you are British, and especially if you're nervous about money, is in biblical times, it was a matter for the community. Now, most of us have probably been raised in a world where your finances are incredibly personal and incredibly private. A bit like your religious views, maybe, and a bit like your political views, which is why they say when you're having dinner with someone, never chat about politics, religion, or money. But this doesn't swing it in the people of Jesus, because at the time of Jesus, it was only because it was a, a, a focal point of community talk that they were able to get to a place that we see in Acts, where the people who follow Jesus had everything in common, and they were able to give to everyone who's in need. And the thing is, when we speak about things in community, when we bring light to them, then the power that that thing holds suddenly disappears. Whether it's a secret mess that you're involved in, whether it's some kind of weird um, like habit that you're involved in, whether it's you just love chocolate really late at night, the minute you bring that into community, it sheds a light on it and the power fades. And money is the same as this. And thirdly is this, is that in, in terms of the Bible, the way that money is viewed, it is used for the reweaving of creation until Christ comes again. Like it is a tool in the hands of people who follow Jesus to, be, to play a part in building God's kingdom. It's not just a, we don't just use it to, to value people when you, when, you, when you follow Jesus. You don't use it as a metric of, of your own success or your own security. It is simply a tool in the hands of a Christian for the reweaving of creation until Christ comes again. So today, we're going to talk about not how we view money, but how we use money. But before we get into it, I just feel that there might be someone here today who all you need to hear tonight is this, that God loves you. That God loves you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you so that anything that separates you from his love has gone so you may live a life filled with his spirit, filled with his love, filled with his power, his purpose, and his potential in your life. 
and that you can walk out of these doors saying, yes, I now follow Jesus, and I'll follow it like, a, um, like Bambi walks out of, you know, as he's starting to try and walk this new life of following Jesus. It's, I stumble and I fall, but I have a God who always pursues me by his love. And there's someone here tonight who that's all you need to hear. And tonight you might want to say, you know what, I want to follow Jesus today. On what date are we on? You want to say on the 15th of October, 2023, I gave my life to Jesus. And if that's you, then I'd love to pray for you at the end of this. And that's all you need to hear. You can switch off now, get your phone out, go on Angry Birds or whatever. Angry Birds still a thing? No? Some, some people are nodding. Angry Bird in it up. Series 5.0 or whatever. So we're going to talk about money a little bit. How we earn money, how we spend money, and how we save money. And again, I need to say this, and I said this last week, I am not a financial expert. This is not some Christian version of Andrew Tate or a money-saving expert or any of that stuff. I'm not about to give you a get-rich-quick scheme. I'm not about to tell you who to invest in, what cryptocurrency to use. I'm not that guy. I'm not a financial expert. But what I have done is I've devoted my life now to following Jesus in such a way that I read a lot of scripture and I've tried over the past couple of months to say what is useful. What is useful for us to understand biblically about how people who follow Jesus should handle this resource that God has blessed us with. So that's where we're coming at this from. Is that okay? Cool. So money is simply this. It's an agreed resource that we've all agreed universally to be used in an exchange of goods. That's all it is, right? So what we've all agreed universally is a five-pound note is worth more value than a one-pound coin and less value than a ten-pound note. And so therefore, if I exchange that with someone, then I should get something of a similar value back to me. And we have decided, whether it's um, time or skills or expertise or experiences or objects, that we're going to use these monies to exchange for goods back. So whether you want a band to come to your house you need to pay them. Does anyone know the most expensive band to come to your house? Anyone, anyone want to shout out any ideas? Who do you think the most expensive band would be to come to your house? You two, great choice. It's not that though. Anyone else? Coldplay? No. <laughs> Sorry, Coldplay fans. Um, it's not Coldplay. Um, anyone else? Spice Girls? No, it's not that either. It's the Rolling Stones for 8.1 million. And that's before they turned anything on. But the Rolling Stones, I think it's to get the medical staff around to make sure they're all pulsing um, still before they play. But 8.1 million, 8.1 million pound coins can get you the Rolling Stones to your house. But we've, we've agreed universally as humans on this planet that we are going to use these things made of gold and paper to exchange goods. And yet, the Bible says the love of this stuff the love of this stuff, not the stuff itself, but the love of this stuff is the root of all evil. So money is not an evil in itself, it's just a bit of paper, it's just a bit of cold, it's just a bit of copper. It can't be evil, it's inanimate. But yet the love of the stuff is the cause of all kinds of strife. And as we as humans enjoy acquiring the money, we start to idolize the feeling of security it gives us. And then we lust after the collection of more and more. And then it causes all kinds of behaviors to raise the ugly head. We start to get jealous of those who have more than us. We start to get greedy about possessing more. We start to get lazy and think, well, money can solve my problems. I don't need to do anything anymore. We can start to manipulate. We can start to compare. We can start to envy. We can be corrupted. And so how do people who follow Jesus use money in a way that simply builds the kingdom of God? 
not our own empires? How do we use money in a way that breaks the bondages of the oppressed rather than enchaining the poor? So if you're a note taker, feel free to get out your phone. If not, that's fine too. I can email you my notes if you want them. But we're going to start with this. How do we earn money? Now, I know some of you, whether you're a student or you've got a job, probably think that work is a result of the fall, right? Because the course you selected, like this work, is, is probably a result of the fall. Now, if you've never opened a Bible, the Bible starts with a, a, a picture of God creating the world. And he sets man and woman in a garden and says, you can eat from anything you want. Just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will surely die. And then Eve takes a bite and then Adam shares it too. And then they get in this right pickle and suddenly there is a barrier between them and God. Suddenly this barrier has, has, has come between them and God, a barrier called shame, and they have to clothe themselves up. They have to put in more barriers in between them and God because they, have no, they are no longer worthy. And many of us think that at that point, that's when work came into the world because we have jobs that we don't like or we're on courses that we don't like. But it says this in Genesis 2.15, which is just before the full episode. It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Hebrew literally means to steward or care and cultivate. Work is not a product of the fall. But the thing that is a product of the fall is we have to feel like we're earning something in return for the work that we give. Because before the fall, Adam was happy enough working because he knew he had a relationship with his father who was going to protect him, who was going to provide for him, who was going to be with him, who was going to give everything he needs. He knew that that was enough, that I'll carry on tending this garden because I'm in full relationship with my father. I have full trust that my father will provide for me. But the fall resulted in a mistrust of God's love and care. A, a mistrust in God's love and care. And therefore, at the fall came a consequence that we now need to be rewarded for our work. We need to be reimbursed, recompensed, and valued for our work. And so trading began. And now the simplest trade, and the one that has captured the human imagination for the longest amount of time, is cold, hard cash. And so, how do we as Christians earn this stuff in a way that builds the kingdom of God? Well, the first thing is this. Paul writes the, the, the people in Colossae, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do. The Bible puts out this picture that you can do anything as for the Lord. You can work anywhere as for the Lord. You can be a stay-at-home parent. You could be in an amazing degree. You could do whatever as for the Lord, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And I saw this play out when I worked in my least favorite job, Spudgy-like. Anyone ever been to a Spudgy-like? There's a few nods in the house. Spudgy-like, hot potatoes in a takeaway fashion, often in a shopping center, right? It's the grimmest job I've ever had for many reasons. One, I had to wear a spudge-like hat and a spudge-like t-shirt and a spudge-like apron in the shopping center that all my mates hung, hang out in, in like, on like a Saturday. They'd all swamp there and they'd go to the Burger King opposite spudge-like. And I was there in my red spudge-like hat wearing my spudge-like apron. And, and the, the grimmest part of the job is uh, anyone like, like prawn mayo or tuna mayo in a, in a hot potato? Any of those guys? Well, no, good, because at Spudgy Like, it comes in huge white plastic vats off the back of a lorry, and then it would go into Spudgy Like, and then I would decant it with a massive ladle, 
into like a nicer tray that then when people came and said, can I have a tuna mayo spud, please, then, or potato, um, they would, I would then cut it up and then pour that into it. So grim. And I hadn't been a Christian that long at all when I was working at Spudgelike, but there was this lady called Mary who worked at Spudgelike, and she was the most joyous potato seller in all of potato selling. She was incredible. She, she knew the Lord well. She was a Pentecostal Christian. And she would often quote this, whatever you do, Alex, work at it with all your heart. And it was so annoying. I wanted to be annoyed at the hot potatoes. I wanted to be annoyed at the customers. I wanted to be so furious with the fact that I hated this thing. And I was so annoyed and it stunk. And, and I would go home smelling of potatoes. And you're thinking, potatoes don't really smell. They really do if you're only surrounded by potatoes for like eight hours. And I used to get so infuriated. But Mary, all the time, she'd be like, whatever you do, you can do it with all your heart. She'd be singing. She'd be being so kind to all the customers. She'd be getting tips and all that stuff. And I, I hated it. I hated it so much to the point that three weeks later, I simply, um, as if I was in a Hollywood film, hung up my hat, hung up my apron, walked out and never went back again. Just didn't say anything to anyone. I just left. Just left. The Reservoir Dogs theme tune playing in my head. Like this is, this is cool gangster move. And then about, about four years later, I went back to that shopping center, St. George's in Harrow in Northwest London. And Mary's still working there. Mary's still working there, still singing, still friendly. Alex, you remember me? Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. She's a far better Christian than I am. And so we should have this posture that whatever we do, when we're following Jesus, we're able to do it. Why? Because our bosses are not of human flesh. We are not for human masters, but we're working for the Lord. And we will receive an inheritance. It might not come in an inflation-based pay rise. But we will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that we are serving. So first thing, whatever we do. But secondly, and this is important for us all, we move out of rest. We move out of rest. Moses says the people in exile in Exodus, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall do labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You shall do no emails. You shall have no corridor conversations about the work. You shall do no Instagramming your business to see how it's doing. You shall not do any work at all. Why? Well, remember, the people of Israel were enslaved people. There are people who every day they had to wake up and make bricks for the building of the Egyptian empire, day in, day out. And when God liberates them from that slavery, when God sets them free from that slavery into the wilderness on the way to the promised land, he's saying no longer are you valued by what you produce. No longer is your value attached to how many bricks you can make in a day. But now you are people who are going to operate out of rest because you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove as people who are following Jesus. As God's children, we have nothing to prove. Our worth is not bound up in our career. Our worth is not bound up in how much money we make. Our worth is not bound up in our accolades or our qualifications. We are sons and daughters of the most high God, inheritors of the kingdom. But it costs. It's hard. And we're not talking just like have a day off and go for a walk around the park. Like actual rest, switching off properly, says a couple of things to the world. It says that we can trust in God. We can trust in God that he holds all things in the palm of his hand. Even our exam pressures, even our stresses, he holds it all. 
And it comes at real financial cost. Now, a friend of this church, he runs a business over on the Wirral running three car garages, three big car garages for very exciting car companies. And um, last year, uh, no, sorry, several years back, he um, decided that he had been taking a Sabbath day, like one day off where he wasn't going in, um, which even for someone who's a CEO of a company is a big shot. Um, but he decided that that wasn't far enough. That instead, he wanted to say that just as a rule, as a flat rule, whether you're a Christian or not, and you work in this company, we're all going to have the same day off. We're all going to not work on Sundays. Now, the problem is for the car selling world is there are two busiest days of your working week, a Saturday and a Sunday. If you don't go to church on Sunday, then you're obviously buying cars or whatever if you live on the Wirral. Um, but Sunday's like a big day. So the, the moment you say, I'm going to stop selling on a Sunday, what does that say to people? Well, the thing is, it said to one of the car companies who they sold cars for, we don't want you selling our cars anymore because you're going to make a massive profit loss. And, and the problem is they're people employed. And so overnight, they were going to have to make a load of people redundant and they're going to lose a load of money. But they were convinced. They were convinced that we wanted to have a culture in our team that people work out of a place of rest, not just working for rest. And when they made the call and they lost the car company, then and literally overnight, they thought, going to have to make everyone redundant tomorrow morning. And they got a call the next day from an even bigger car company that said, we love your values. We want you to sell these cars instead. Are you up for it? And so overnight, one, uh, the company took off T-shirts of one car company. And the next day, put on T-shirts of the new company and started selling those things. It comes at a cost, but people honor it and they see the value in it. And we ourselves, in all kinds of ways, are made wholer because of it. We move out of rest. Also, how do Christians earn? We earn with intention. Here's a fun proverb. I love these kind of things. Proverbs 13, verse 4 says this. The soul of the lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Now, please, before I say anything else, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This is not how to become wealthy in the kingdom of God. This is not a, if you text this, then God is going to multiply your digits. like tenfold. This is not that. The thing is, is that what the Bible's forecast of finances, and they're talking about it, is they're talking about health over wealth. And you can have loads of money and be financially unhealthy. And you can have very little and be financially healthy. And we shared this story last, last week about Jesus when he um, highlights a widow who gives two coins. Someone who's incredibly financially healthy, even though she has very little, because she prioritizes God versus the Pharisees who are giving loads of money, but Jesus is calling them out and saying they're not financially healthy at all. And so this is not about that. What this is saying is that actually the soul of the lazy person desires and has nothing. And as people who are following God, who gives us purpose by his spirit, we've got to be people that move with intention. That we're not just, start, not just being buffeted away around by the waves, just waiting for money to come into our laps or waiting for our shot to happen. But we are people that move with intention. And fourthly, when you become a Christian, you may feel a sudden impulse to change job where you're suddenly like, you know, you might become a Christian and you see Tim up here with a guitar and be like, that's what I need to do. I need to become Tim and play guitar for the Lord um, until he comes again. Or you might become a Christian at, um, and then suddenly think, oh, my job, I need to change completely. I need to go out to far swung lands and, and spread the gospel in all kinds of ways. And that can be tempting. I would say don't immediately leave your job, but discern it. <laughs> Discern it. Are you in a job where you, continue to, where you can continue to honor God and bless others? Now, if you are the kingpin of the Liverpool Mafia and you're here, maybe this is your wake-up call. Because that might be a job that you might need to leave and consider. There are some jobs that are counterintuitive to the message of Jesus. 
There are. Ephesians 4, Paul writes this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I'd say that if you're in a work that benefits from the failing of others, it may be time to reevaluate what you're doing and why. Paul, for example, stopped his job of seeing the persecution of Christians and becoming one of the greatest communicators, theologians, and pastors of living history. Simon changed from being a fisherman to being a fisher of men, but Lydia, she continued to being a merchant of purple cloth as she welcomed Paul and other people to minister in her home. And when people were being baptized by John the Baptist at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we have something really interesting happen. It says this from, verse, uh, from chapter 3, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, him being John the Baptist, what then shall we do? So they've just been dunked, and they're now saying, like, what shall we do now? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. He's saying, like, firstly, before you do anything else, before you buy like a gilded Bible, before you download some Bible study notes, before you go on a prayer app or whatever, remember that the things you're blessed with should be used to bless others. It's the first thing he says. And then tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you're authorized to do. So don't stop giving, don't stop being a tax collector, but start living honorably. Stop swindling people, stop making shortcuts, stop putting extra interest for your, to line your own pockets. And then soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So he's saying, don't just leave your job. Don't just leave your job. But now you act differently. Now when we follow Jesus, the way we act within our jobs changes massively. When I was uh, 11, I um, spent a lot of time in this building. Nice little picture here. Look at that. <laughs> Any ideas like that? No, I won't do that. Um, <laughs> um, so between the age of 11 and 14, I spent a lot of, uh, like at least two times a week, if not three or four, in this building. This is the headquarters of the Army Cadets in Littlehampton, where I grew up. And I loved the army cadets. Like I, had the, I had the nicest crease down my, uh, down my um, combats. My boots were the shiniest. My beret would be, I, like, I'd form it every single week, even though you don't need to do it that much. And I was a proper army cadet nerd. I could like strip a rifle and put it back together blindfolded. I used to win awards. I used to, um, I got a really high rank. I just absolutely loved it. I devoted everything to being the army cadets. And um, I was uh, okay at languages, too, because I've got some French family. And so I wanted to join the army, and I wanted to be in the, um, in the secret service, like doing some language stuff. And so I'd applied, when I was about 15, to do, do officer training college, to join them when I was 16. And I got a place to, to um, start uh, officer training college at Sandhurst. Uh, but the problem is, is that between high school and sick form, when I would have gone to Sandhurst, is I became a Christian. And, um, and the first person I told when I became a Christian was I told my mum. I went home after being at church one night and said, Mum, I think I've become a Christian. She's like, what does that mean? I was like, oh, I, think, I think now I want to follow Jesus. And she looked at me like, what are you doing? Um, and then the next person I called was on the Monday. I called the army recruitment officer from Sandhurst and said, um, he picked up the phone. He said, hello. Uh, I said, um, oh, I'm Alex. And uh, I just need to let you know that I'm turning down my place at Sandhurst. He said, why? I said, I've become a Christian. He's like, 
so? <laughs> and I said, well, um, well, I've just become a Christian, and I, I don't know if I could kill anyone. And that's kind of how I said it. Now, obviously, it's incredibly nuanced. I'm now 35, and I've got a bit more of a nuanced opinion on it. Um, and I think you can be a Christian in the army, just if you are in the army. You can be, it's just really difficult. It's just a lot of challenges that are very, very obvious and in your face a lot. But then what happened is after that conversation, I panicked. I was like, what do I do now? Because with, with um, officer training college, it meant my accommodation was sorted, and it meant my livelihood was sorted, and it meant my college was sorted. And now I had to make a quick dash to a college to try and get some A-levels. And I didn't do very well at my GCSEs. And so I signed up for a B-Tech in criminal, sci uh, criminal psychology and forensic science. Anyone else do a similar B-Tech? No one. Brill. Um, it's because you all got good grades. Um, and they would let anyone on because it was like a tester course. And so I went and did that. Um, and then I thought, well, what am I going to do? Because I wanted to move out of my house because it was chaotic and I needed somewhere to live. And I wanted a job that was secure. And so I then sat, found that you could train for the police in a very similar way. Where you can go and stay at a place called Hendon. You can stay at college and sort out accommodation, sort out training. So I went up to my pastor and I said, um, I'm going to join the Metropolitan Police. Um, can you sign my character reference form, please? And he took it, and in front of me, he ripped it up. I'm like, what are you doing? He says, I know that what you need to do, what you need to do is you need to give your life over to serving young people. And at the time, I was really passionate about youth work and spending a lot of time volunteering in that stuff and just didn't realize it could be a job. I just absolutely loved helping out with young people and stuff. Um, and then he found me somewhere to live, and, um, and I ended up training and, and doing a degree in youth work. The thing is, the job, as long as, as long as you can honor God, as long as you can bless others, the actual job doesn't matter. The actual job doesn't matter. In the economies of the kingdom, if you can serve God, if you can bless others, then you can follow God in that job. Discern it, though. Make sure we're approaching this with intention. Make sure we're not just stumbling into stuff, but we're actually approaching it with intention. So that's how we earn it, but how do we spend money? Well, firstly, Paul writes to Timothy, his kind of protege, he says this, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, wow, who wants to preach on that passage? I mean, they're harsh words, but what is he actually saying? This does not just mean financially, because we all know that you can heat a home, but not have love around the dinner table. We all know that you can lavish people with gifts at Christmas, but never show care throughout the other 364 days of the year. We know that. And so what is he saying? He is saying that anyone who does not provide for those, for his own, for his household, is worse than unbeliever. Now, how did the New Testament look at unbelievers? Well, remember that the New Testament looks at people who do not believe in Jesus as people who are in need of care and they're in need of protection and they're in need of love as we bring them into the fold of the community of God and say, this is how we can serve you and this is how your life can be enriched by being a member of the church. And so this command is not just about like a personal one on, on judgment. This is not about saying um, that if you can't provide for your household, you should be judged. It's saying, if you can't provide for your household, you need to speak up. Because there's a whole body of church that wants to look out for you. There's a whole community here that wants to help you. If you're struggling to pay your rent, if you're struggling to get your food shop, if you're struggling, even as a student, and you're struggling with finances, speak up about it so the community can look out for you. So the community can help you out. So the community can help you onto a path of recovery. 
when you become a Christian, you become part of a wider family. And it's not just about what goes on behind closed doors anymore. I'm sorry about that. Look to your left and to your right. The people around you are your new brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a communal responsibility for one another, which means that one person is struggling, we should feel the hurt. But the problem is, is with our Western mindset around this stuff, is we just think, I'm just going to be quiet about all my struggles. I'm just going to kind of maybe drop a hint every now and then about how stuff is really going on. I might give someone an awkward side glance, but actually, uh, I'm not actually going to be honest about what's going on. Which flies completely in the face of the New Testament community that shared everything in common, that were honest about their failings, honest about their weaknesses, would present the problems so that people could rally around them. And then we, then we get brought to the Acts 2 community where everyone is sharing everything in common and not one person goes without need. Those who have give so that those who don't are blessed. Secondly, another way we spend money in the kingdom of God is we pay what we owe to others. The letter from James says this, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who moved your fields, who mowed your fields even, can't move a field, who mowed your fields, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. I mean, they're harsh words to some people who didn't pay their lawnmower, aren't they? That's what's going on here. Someone wanted their lawn mowed, they didn't pay it. Harsh words. But what's going on? Well, I found out that apparently in, in America, um, when people work in restaurants, their least favorite day to work is a Sunday. Because as people come out of church, they tip badly and they get super grumpy at all the waiting staff. Awful, isn't it? What an awful statistic. What an awful story that all these people who are waiting tables can't, like, they just can't face working on a Sunday because all these grumpy Christians leaving their church after hearing about generosity in the kingdom, after hearing uh, sermons about grace, after singing songs about how amazing God is, we walk out of our churches and we're stingy and we don't pay and, we, and we're grumpy. Obviously, you guys aren't. Very different, I've heard, from being there in tavern. What it's saying is stinginess nor lateness are qualities that we find in the way of Jesus. We don't find those in the way of Jesus. Make sure you commit to paying for something. Make sure before you commit to paying for something that you can pay for the something. Also, sit down and estimate the cost. Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it and now as I confessed publicly last week the thing that I do when I'm tired or I'm fed up or I'm angry or I'm lacking encouragement or I'm lacking any kind of sense of get up and go is I will um, just buy something little <laughs> a little micro transaction here or there another book for the must read pile another random gadget to make my milk frothier or something. It won't be like substantial amounts of money. We're talking between six and 10 pounds, but loads of little ones, they give me a little hit of dopamine and they make me think, oh, brilliant, I've solved something. The, the problem is with this is it's so hard in our microtransaction world where we don't physically feel money, leave our pocket, and sometimes budgeting becomes difficult. Anyone find budgeting difficult? It's hard because we don't feel it leave our pockets. However, I would say use whatever you can to budget as much as possible. And I realized I found this difficult a few years ago with all these microtransactions so that, and please don't think I'm a child right now, but I get pocket money now. Not for my parents, but for my wife. 
Like once a month, I'll get some pocket money. And once it's gone, it's gone. I can save it sometimes to get a bigger purchase. Why are you laughing? It's, but uh, but find, how, find a, a way of budgeting really well so that you can um, exercise as you sit down and estimate the cost. And we've been through some real times where the paycheck has just about brought us back to the zero at the beginning of the month. But yet we needed friends' advice and patience and honesty to get us through that. And certainly, we've had to talk with friends about money. We can't do this alone. No one's an expert in the room. As I said last week, even financial advisors, they're not necessarily experts. They might know some stuff, but we haven't seen their cars, we haven't seen their homes, we haven't seen their bank balances. Psalm 37, verse 21 says this, the wicked burrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. And I know what you're all thinking. You're all probably thinking, well, he must be righteous because he's holding a microphone. But here's a story of where I was the wicked one. I learned this the hard way when I was a student through um, a really uh, nasty trap that most banks have called a student overdraft. Who's got one of those? I mean, if you think about it, <laughs> banks giving 18-year-olds money for free to say, oh, just pay it back when you want, mate. Zero percent. It's going to be fine. And so I went to a bank, not my own bank. I went to a new bank and set up a new um, uh, student account so that I could access this student overdraft. And I spent it all. And I didn't pay anything back. And for a little while, I started getting letters uh, once a month with the new uh, bank balance on there. And um, negative, negative, big numbers. Um, and firstly, the, the letters were quite friendly. They're like, hey, mate, hope you're all right. However banks say it. You're just checking in. <laughs> Can you pay us something back? And then I'd ignore that. And, and, then, the, and then the letters kept coming. They started getting a bit more formal in the lettering. And then I stopped opening them and started just to recognize them. And then they start to change the font color of the envelope. So it's all red font now. It says urgent. And I kept on throwing them. I kept on ripping them up and throwing them away. But at this time, I was living with a Christian family who were amazing and very, very kind and lovely people. And one day I came down for breakfast and there was one of my letters that I'd ripped up and put in the bin and it had been sellotaped up and it was in, on the breakfast table as I came down. And I was like, oh no. And my belly started to churn. And I was like, what is going on? And the couple were there making porridge or whatever they did. And, um, and I, I said, uh, my letter's there. They said, yeah, we've paid it. And I was like, you've done what now? They said, we've paid it. And in the morning, they had called up the bank. They'd seen one of these letters in the, in the, in the bin. They'd called the bank, and they said, we want to pay the, the complete overdraft. And I said, why did you do that? And they said, we can't go to church on a Sunday and sing about Jesus who has set us free and have someone in our house who's enchained by debt. And so they paid it all off. And they weren't incredibly wealthy at all. The minute they did that, I then came up with a massive long list of all the chores I'll do around their house. I'll make your garden look amazing. I'll get the pressure washer out. I'll do everything. I'll cook every meal. All this. They're like, no, 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 no. Stop it. It's free. It's grace. And it's done. Consider debt in community. The thing is, is Mortgages and student finance are a type of debt that needs to be considered, and if managed well, are a kind of debt that can be used to be a blessing. 
But there aren't many others, apart from maybe super-specific examples, maybe around healthcare and that kind of thing, that are a great idea to choose debt. Before you take out a credit card, or a higher purchase, or a student overdraft again, or a new loan, or a payday, whatever, ask people in your group. Ask friends, ask people who are a bit older than you, ask people who have gone a bit before you, involve them in the process, because it gets rid of the power of these financial decisions. These things that feel so big, the minute we bring it to the light, it can be a shared, owned thing. And holding it off if it isn't essential. You know, there's a, some great tools like the 72-hour rule that when you think you want something, just wait 72 hours. And all the things in your brain, all the levels of dopamine and cortisol, they'll all diminish over 72 hours. And suddenly, three days later, you'll be like, oh, actually, that's not so important after all. But consider it in community. And you never know. When you hang out with Christians, they're a lovely bunch. The amount of times me and my wife haven't been able to afford a holiday and it's just come up in a conversation somehow and someone's gone, oh, do you know what? We've got a friend of a friend who's got a random house in the middle of nowhere. You can go and use that. In fact, one of the holidays, and it was not my favorite holiday whatsoever, but we went to stay with some random guy's parents' house that had an annex that was on the side. There are loads of dogs. So it, was, it was a bit of a stinky house. But they're really, um, but like, it, was, um, it wasn't all that great. But we got a holiday. <laughs> And we wouldn't have had one that year. And the amount of random cars we've been given. The fact of I mean, horrible cars. Absolute, like, absolute fixer-uppers. But it was always at times when we needed a car and we couldn't afford one. And someone ran and we'd be like, oh, I've got six spare cars behind my house or whatever. But there was this one family. Um, we didn't have a car for a long time just because we couldn't afford it. And there was this guy at our church who was like, well, I've got a company car. And you're more than welcome to take that whenever you need it on holiday. So we, for years, every holiday would drive this Audi that was lovely. And it was before, like, you could have a really good smartphone sat-nav. And you would press a button that would call a call center. And they would say, good morning, Mr. Dennis. And my name's not Mr. Dennis. That's the guy who owned the car. And I'd be like, hello? I'd say, <laughs> They'd be like, where do you want to go to? And you would tell them. And then they would beam the, um, the directions into the car. And it would all be like, so you wouldn't even have to type in the postcode. Do you know what I mean? Lovely, and they just drive this, and we drove this Audi around all the, all the time, and our friends thought that we were earning some big bucks, because every time they saw us on holidays, we'd be driving this Audi. But make sure you consider financial stuff in community. It sheds light on the thing, it releases the power from the thing, and it means that it's a shared decision that we can go in together. And then some final thoughts on how we save. Proverbs 6, another one of our favorite Proverbs, says this, go to the ant, you sluggard. Sluggard is such an underused like insult, isn't it? You sluggard. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Now, I think what we can take from this is this. Saving is really, really great. Saving is really great, but there's a but with this. It is seasonal in the kingdom of God. It's best used in, in its seasons, a great parable that Jesus tells to illustrate this is this. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to the man, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, that's the people around him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life is not just about the accumulation of stuff. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He's saying he had so, much, so many crops made, so many crops, but he had nowhere to store them. And he said to this, 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. So I'll keep getting bigger savings. I'll keep, make, keep accumulating this stuff. And I'll store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. You're fine. Your savings are sorted. You can, just, you can rest up and you can, as it says, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Basically, your time is up. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Just accumulating wealth for a rainy day is never a great idea. I say apply strategy to your savings. And the thing is this, we might have like this pressure to build up savings. And savings are really important if they have strategy. Because the problem without strategy, if it's just a, a massive blob of money called savings, but it's not for a sp certain specific purpose, like this might be the holiday fund here, and this might be the car fund, and this might be the, um, save this might be the mortgage fund. If it's just a big blob called savings, one of two things will happen. Either you'll keep chipping into that because you want a takeaway, and you're like, oh, there's, I haven't got much in the balance, but we can get out of savings, is a phrase that's used in our house all the time. Or you walk past a random furniture shop and they've got a flash sale and you see a chaise long and you're like, oh, we get it out of savings. And then suddenly all the, all the things, all the noble things that you thought you had savings for starts to get chipped away. That might happen. Or the second thing that might happen is you might just have loads and loads and loads of money eventually in this big blob called savings and you've missed out on all the opportunities where you could have blessed worthy causes, needy people, opportunities for advancing the kingdom and you simply missed it because you're saving for a rainy day. So how should we view money? Well, we should view it as if it motivates the heart, as if it reflects our emotion, it reflects our passions, it reflects our desires, and it should be talked about in community. In Christian community, this should be a distinctive that we talk about the stuff, we talk about the taboo subjects that the world doesn't like to talk about because we've got no shame, because we have no fear, because we have no anxiety or guilt around this stuff, we talk about it. And so we look out for each other who are in a mess and we help people out and we should view it as if it is the thing that is helping us to reweave creation until Christ comes again. And so simply how we use it, well, we use it as if each purchase reflects our heart. And I'm not saying like every time you buy a Subway, is this a motivation of the heart? <laughs> but if all you're buying are Subways, then there might be an issue. We should use money and work out how to use it in community. You don't have to try and do this stuff alone. This isn't about you going home and trying to get out an Excel spreadsheet and working out how to do, like discuss it in community, discuss it in your groups, in your trios here at church. And ultimately you want to use it for the reweaving of creation until Christ comes again. Why? This isn't really a money series. This is really a heart series. It's what are the motivators of our heart and how do the things we do reflect our heart? Remember Christ came to set us free, to set us free from anxiety, from shame, from guilt, from the powers that hold us back and from our own messy lives. He came to set us free. The most well-known Bible passage of all time, John 3.16, illustrates this. God so loved the world, he was motivated out of his heart, motivated by love motivated by love to give us what his one and only son, the most valuable resource he has, the ultimate savings pot, to give it all so that anyone who believes in him 
shall not perish but have eternal life. The greatest transaction we are ever going to make is a free one. My belief in him for eternal life. Not my money for success, not my money for significance. My belief in him for eternal life.